1: Thank you, JJ, for that introduction, and I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. We are now in over 50 countries, and I so appreciate each of my guests who have had phenomenal stories of success and overcoming trauma and turning hopelessness into hope. And I also thank each of my listeners who have left a review and comments and who are regular listeners from all over the world. It is so much appreciated. I thank you. With me today is Phyllis Clemens. Phyllis is a best-selling author of several books, and she's going to share some of those with us today. She holds a bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's in management, human resource development, and leadership. One of the things we're going to talk about today is her books and how they can inspire and strengthen you as the reader. But we're also going to talk about her life and what brought her to the place of writing the types of books to encourage and inspire us.
2: Welcome, Phyllis! Hello, everybody! So good to be here, and so good to be with you, Carol. And where are you located? I'm in San Antonio, Texas. And is it pretty warm there today? Oh, it's beautiful. We didn't even have a winter this year.
1: Neither did we on the West Coast. It's just it's it's a, it's a little scary in some. You know, know, but nonetheless, we certainly enjoyed it. So yes, indeed.
2: It's in the 70s. I love it. Oh, Uh,
1: my goodness. That's nice.
2: Yes, indeed.
1: So before we discuss your books, can you tell us about what happened in your life in the area of pain or trials or trauma, where you came to the place of feeling hopeless?
2: This goes all the way back, Carol, to my earliest beginnings um, when I was just a little, a little girl, uh, my parents, uh, they split up, um, uh, my mother, I stayed with her at first, but my mother had really not had, uh, an opportunity to do anything, uh, as far as have a, her own social life or be her own person, Uh, when she first became an adult she met my dad when she was 13 years old and that was the only man she'd ever known up Mm. until they split up and so she kind of missed that whole opportunity of teenage life where you get to date and have a social life she missed all of that because he he kind of held her tight from the beginning and when he went off to the korean war Uh, And left her here because they weren't married yet. Um, She found another boyfriend. Now, I don't know what happened. My dad never told me what happened, but he did share with me many years later. He said, when I came back from the war... Your mother was dating someone else. He Mm. said, I I went and I got my girl back. So I don't know what he did to get (laughs) his girl back. But he made it very clear that he went and got her back. And they were married and they had me. So from age 13 on, she knew... No one else, because that brief time that she had a boyfriend, it was so brief that, and you know, my father took that away from her. So she never really knew what it was like. So when they split up, she began to go out and have fun and party. That was back in the day when they had what they called cabarets. Mm -hmm. Now, in those years, cabarets were, you went, you got dressed up, you wore your long gowns and your beautiful dresses, and you went out and you went to a place where they had live band music and food and you were able to mingle and have social time with with friends and and people that you knew and some people that you didn't know. So she was very much into that cabaret scene. But she was very young, uh also. And um being very young like that, she didn't have the kind of wisdom that you That you need going forward as you're raising uh, children. Mm. And so it it didn't, I don't think she was afraid at all when she would go out and leave me alone at five, six years old. Mm. And many times I would wake up in the morning and she wouldn't be there. And I uh, remember being hungry and getting food from the refrigerator. I remember getting bacon from the refrigerator and turning on the stove and pulling the chair up to the stove to cook the bacon. Oh, my goodness. And my father, who never relinquished his key, by the way, when he left, came into the apartment. And as he always does, it was his tradition that he had a special whistle. I can't whistle, but I'm going (laughs) to share with you what the tune was like. And he would always, when he came into the door, he would say, that was his special whistle. And I got down from the chair and went running to him. Daddy, daddy. I was so glad to see him. And he says, where's your mother? And I said, I don't know. She's not here. When I woke up, she wasn't here. So he, uh, finished making my breakfast and got me, uh, bathed and dressed and ready and told me that we were going, uh, to live. I was going to go live with his sister, who was Mm. my aunt, uh, at the time. And, and I, I, I was sad, even though my mother really at that time wasn't a, a very nurturing mother. No matter what, what I found out is no matter what your parents are like, good or bad Mm -hmm. or indifferent, you still love them. You still love them. That's right. They could be the worst bums in the world. You still love them. So I was sad and I didn't want to go, but I had no choice in the matter. The things that happened to me in those days, I had no choice in the matter. I just had to do what I was told. I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do for myself. So he did take me to his sisters to live and it was so different from anything I had ever known. I mean, from, from everything. Uh, I had chores to do. I had study time, which was hours and hours of study time every day. Uh, my uncle was a, a, a stickler for education. Uh, he only was able to get an associate's degree before he had to stop. But he was adamant that any child under his authority and leadership would be educated. He taught us everything he knew. We had to learn all 50 of the states. We had to do (laughs) our timetables from 1 to 12. And he would give you one timetable every week at the beginning of the week. And when he came home on Friday nights, he was a truck driver. When he came home on Friday nights after dinner, he would take off his belt which was about three inches wide. You know, (laughs) choppers wear those wide belts. And he would put it over his knees, and he would call me to the table to recite the timetable that he had given me at the beginning of the week. I better know it. Wow. And I did know it, because I didn't want to get hit with Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) So, uh, by the time we were in third grade, we knew our timetables, one through 12, me and my brother. Hmm. Those were mandates. We had to speak a certain way. We weren't allowed to say, yeah. We had to say yes or yes, ma'am. There were words that I was used to saying uh, in my vocabulary because my parents, they never really, you know, bothered much with telling us the proper way to speak. So there were so many Mm -hmm. words that they would make you say the right way. And you could say it a dozen times wrong and they would say, no, don't say that, say this. Until you got it. Well, that relationship, it started out pretty good. But it got to a point early on where my aunt uh, wanted me to call her mommy. Well, I had a mom and I didn't really feel good about doing that. And so I wouldn't do it. I refused. I still called her Aunt Rose. Hmm. Okay. Because uh, I had a mother. I still love my mother. And I didn't want to call her mommy. Well, that's when things began to change. The way she treated me began to change. And oh, my goodness. It Hmm. was horrible. Every time I see that movie, uh, Mommy Dearest, I think about those days. Those days when I would be asleep. Because she was a wanderer during the night. She would get up and look for things. To wake me up for now. Mm. I was was a heavy sleeper. Once I went to bed, I went to sleep and I slept hard. And she would wake me up at eleven, twelve o'clock at night. And she would be standing at the foot of my bed, screaming. And i i couldn't I couldn't grasp what she was talking about because when I woke up, I was a a bit Mm -hmm. sorts. You know, it took me a while to connect. To, to get my brain registering again and by the time I get my brain registering where I had some kind of clue what she was talking about she would be on her way down the steps to get what she called Minitails oh my goodness now Minitails was a flogging device that she made out of plastic clothesline that she uh, cut into about six strips oh, and tied goodness. together how old
1: were you at this time?
2: I was seven. Okay. She would go get many tales and I would, I would, she say, I'm going to get many tales because I'm not going to keep telling you the same thing and you're, you're just laying there and you're not, you're not responding. And I would be, okay, okay, what, what, what did you say? Cause I didn't get it the first time you wake me up out of deep sleep and I'm not, I'm delirious. I'm not coherent. So shes it's too late then. So she goes and she gets the bell and she comes back and she beats me within an inch of my life. And then she takes all the clothes in the closet and takes them out of the closet and throw them on the bed and tell me to get up and fix them. Well, I found out what happened was there were a few clothing items that had fallen to the floor Hmm. and I didn't know it. And she would come in in the middle of the night and look for stuff. And she'd open that closet and she'd see any clothing on the floor. You weren't going to just wake up and pick up those few pieces. She's going to take everything and throw it on the bed and you're going to start from scratch. Hmm. Now, that was the upstairs dilemma. The downstairs dilemma would be, okay, everything is good upstairs. I remember to check my closet before I go to bed. Nothing's on the floor. Everything is in order in my room. And I I think I can sleep peacefully. She'd snatch the covers off in the middle of the night and she'd be wailing on my behind with that flogging device and tell me, get downstairs. You forgot to wash the coffee pot. Well, I was doing dishes. okay. and when you do dishes in that house. It was a big, huge ordeal. You did everything. You, you weren't just doing dishes. The only thing she did was she would put the food away. The rest was mine. That was to scrape the, the remains of food off of each dish into the, the garbage bin, rinse them, stack them, glasses first, silverware next, dishes next, pots and pans last. That's the order that you washed in hot, sudsy water. Afterwards, you'd run clear water and more soap. And then you'd wipe off the table. You'd wipe off the bottoms of the chairs where you sat. Then you'd turn the chairs upside down and put them on top of the table. You would empty the garbage, take it outside to the back where a collector came to collect it at the back fence. You had to wipe off the stove Make sure the coffee pot all the that was back in the days when they had percolated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You'd have to take the coffee pot apart, empty the grinds, wash it completely. And dry it and put it back on the stove ready for the next morning. Well, I had forgotten to wash the coffee pot. Well, when that happens, you don't just get to wash the coffee pot after you get that terrible flogging. You got to she would then take the drip trays out of the stove, throw them in the sink, take the eyes of the gas stove off, throw them in the sink. Everything from the stove that could be taken apart, thrown in the sink. And now you got to do not just the coffee pot, but a whole lot of other uh, cleaning, too. And now, mind you, this is midnight, one in the morning night, and I would have to go to school the next day. And uh, it it was that kind of trauma. It was just horrendous. And it was all the time. If a day went by that I didn't get beat, it was such a good day. It did not happen often. I remember one time when um, we always had 15 minutes to get home from school. School was uh, close by. It was just a few blocks and uh you were given from uh three fifteen to three thirty to get home, and if you weren't home by three thirty uh woe be unto because you, you were gonna get it mm. now, let me just interject that my brother rarely got a a a beating he rarely got a beating because um uh, the boys that she raised just didn't get beat. She loved the boys. They could do no wrong. Huh. And um she raised three boys. One was her son, one was her grandson, and one was my brother. And those boys could do no wrong. And they all grew up um, not in the best of shape, um, not able to be responsible for their lives or to be a good upstanding working hardworking citizens they were all pretty much uh, shameful to say pretty much bums but the girls which was me and my cousin who was her daughter we were the ones who were, were our, our feet was held to the fire as far as cleaning went as far as uh, things that we were allowed to do and couldn't do. We were never allowed to go outside during the week. That—that uh, that was that time you spent in your room studying. And if you didn't have homework to do, they were going to make up some for you. <laughs> so it—it it, it was a pretty tough life. And I, I can remember praying so many times. Lord, get me out of this. You know, I'm so I'm so unhappy. I have nobody to go to. Nobody to talk to about this. Nobody who, I don't want to say they didn't care, but they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't help me, and they didn't. Did and your, uh,
1: Did your parents ever find out about this?
2: Oh, yeah, they knew. They knew. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I know my father knew because uh, this is what happened. I was about to tell you. I um, My teacher had told us we were going to have a play in school, and he wanted me to be in the play. And as, uh, the, we had to practice after school. And I said, oh, no, I can't stay after school. I can't ever stay after school. I have to be home by three 30. And he says, don't worry. I'll never forget. His name was Mr. Caldwell. He said, don't worry. I'll give you a note to give to your aunt so that she'll know that you, you stayed after school to practice for the play. And I was happy and excited. I was like, good. Okay, I'll do this. So I stayed after school for the play, and he gave me my note, and I went home thinking everything was going to be great. And when I showed her that note, she said, you are a liar. Your teacher didn't write this note. Oh, my goodness. And I'll be honest with you. The teacher did have bad handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> so that didn't help me either. Oh, no. okay. <laughs> And I told her, oh, he did, he did, I'm not kidding, I'm telling the truth, he did. And she whipped me, and she whipped me, and she said, you're lying. She said, and I'm going to beat you until you tell me the truth. And she beat me, and beat me, and beat me. And finally, it dawned on me, hey, dummy, tell her you're lying so she can stop. No, that's what I'm thinking. (laughs) So I was like, okay, okay, I did it. And then I got a couple of really hard four or five more whacks because she knew she was right. Yeah. And then sent to my room with no dinner. That that followed a beating a lot of times, no dinner. So I would be so upset that I had gotten beaten for something that I didn't do wrong. And I, there was no way I could prove it. Um, and so I ran away. Uh, I went to my father's. He lived in another part of town and I walked all the way from West Philadelphia to North Philadelphia, which is far. Oh my goodness. I mean, it took me hours. It took me maybe three, four hours, but I was determined I was not going to live there anymore. Um, because all of my beatings were so severe and they all left uh, terrible scars on on my body because, you know, uh, that kind of of device, and it wasn't that. It would be an extension cord, an ironing cord. Those things split your skin. Mm. And then she would take, back in the day they had what they call uh, mercurochrome.
1: Yes, I remember that.
2: and and iodine and they would put that on you and that's supposed to heal your wounds and so after every beating she would put that on my open wounds and then tell me that she beat me because she loves me well I wasn't getting that I wasn't getting that (laughs) no kidding but anyway when I went to my father um he called her and they talked and uh, I think they argued Uh, I couldn't hear everything, but I I could hear his voice raised and and knew that he was upset. But at this time, he was living with a woman. And um, so I get the feeling that uh, I got sent back because there was no place for me, Mm. life, though he loved me. uh, You know, you're going to pretty much do what the woman tells you to do, the woman that you are with. So, um, the night before he sent me back, uh, he took out his little black book and we sat talking for hours. And I would tell him about all the, the terrible beatings and all the things, uh, that she did, uh, to hurt me. How she would, she knew I was afraid of the dark. So she would send me to the basement and tell me, don't you dare turn that light on and don't sit down. Stand up. So I would be standing in the basement, and she'd say, "Take your clothes off," because they didn't beat clothes. Clothes cost money. You beat clothes, and you and you ruin them. So they weren't going to ruin the clothes. You had to come out of those clothes uh, before you got a beating. And I would be sent to the basement to stand in a corner in the dark until she got ready to come and beat me. And I would be in the basement praying. Now the kitchen was, where where I stood, the kitchen was right above me. And I would be praying, asking God, please, some kind of way get me out of this. I didn't want to get that beating because it had gotten to the point that the beatings was so severe that uh, the way the houses were made, uh, it was um, like... I don't know how to explain it. I guess you'd call it railroad houses because they went straight through. And in the basement, the basement was the length of the house. It was the length of the kitchen, the dining room, and the living room. So she would get like one or two licks in, and I would run to the other end of the basement. And then she'd run after me, and she'd get one or two licks in, and I'd run to the other end of the basement. Well, she figured out that that was uh, wearing her out. So she came up with this brilliant idea so she wouldn't, uh, you know, be all out of breath and worn out that she would uh, tie me to a chair so I couldn't run. So she tied my my legs to the chair and my hands behind my back to the chair. She would bring a radio downstairs and put it in the window of the basement and turn it up loud so that the neighbors couldn't hear me screaming. Hmm. And she would beat me and beat me. And I'm telling you, those, those, those ironing cords, extension cords, oh, they were the worst. They hurt so bad that you, you couldn't cry. You could just scream. And so I would be sitting there in that chair screaming while she was beating me until she got tired. And then she would untie me. And um, she'd bring the mercurochrome and the methylate uh, iodine and whatever and dress my wounds and tell me I beat you because I love you. And she would go upstairs and leave me in the basement. Uh, my cousin, uh, who was her daughter, would uh, often have mercy on me. And of course, during those times, she was left to do the dishes instead of me. She was older about eight or nine years older. So she would do the dishes and she'd wait for my aunt to go to bed. And then she would make a sandwich and sneak down the basement stairs and give me a sandwich because she knew I was hungry. And, uh, a lot of times she would go upstairs and she would knock on her mother's door and, um, when 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 my when her mother would say, come in, she would say, Mom, did you forget that Phyllis is still in the basement? And she would say, oh, yeah, tell her to come up and go to bed. And so if it hadn't been for my cousin, I would have been in the basement all night, hungry, uh, hurting. Uh, but some of my best prayer time uh, began in that basement. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's when I really began to. <coughs> connect as far as communication goes with the Lord. I never did much praying prior to that time. Uh, But when that time came, i am tell you something. Pain has a way of drawing you uh, close to God. If you've never known him before, uh, pain will make you look up and begin to talk to him when you don't have anybody else to talk to. And that's how it really all began, my conversations with the Lord. It began with me pleading and begging, please get me out of this. And um, there was an incident where um, apparently she had bought a box of chocolates. I didn't even know that they were there. And uh, when I came from school... She said the chocolates were on the table. She said, you ate my chocolates. You've been in my chocolates. I've told you about rambling in my things. And I was like, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't eat your chocolates. I didn't. She said, you're a liar. Oh, she was always calling me a liar. Hmm. I was a liar before I was ever a liar. (laughs) So. She's like, I'm going to beat you. And I would be crying because I didn't know about the chocolates. I didn't eat the chocolates. And she said, you are such a liar. She said, I'm going to beat you until you tell me the truth. Then she would beat me and beat me and beat me. And finally, again, I would say, okay, I did it. I ate it, which I didn't eat it, but I wanted the pain to stop. And as a child, you do whatever you have to do to make that pain stop. And so I would say, okay, I ate them. And she would give me a few more really hard licks. I knew you were lying. I knew you were lying. Get up there, you heifer. And I'd go upstairs and jump in the bed. And I would just cry out to God, you got to get me out of here. You got to get me out of here. I can't take this. And so... um, My uncle, which was his custom, he'd come home. And, you know, back in those days, they didn't have a microwave oven. They had, uh, uh, she used to, after dinner, she would fix his plate because he came home later. Mm -hmm. And she would uh, boil a pot of water and wrap his plate in aluminum foil and put it over the boiling (laughs) water. And that kept his plate hot until he came home. She would turn it off after it got to boiling, but it was still very hot. And it stayed that way until he got home. So he'd come home and he'd uh, wash his hands and he would stand to the sink and run a quart of water into a, a jar and drink it until it was gone. And then he would stand there and run another quart of water into the jar and drink it until it was gone. And then he would take his food and he would sit down to the table. Well, she would come and she would sit with him and tell him about... Her day. The goings on of the day. And so she said to him. I had to beat her again today. And he said. What'd she do this time? She ate my chocolates. I bought a box of chocolates. And when I went to get the chocolates. uh, uh, About 8 or 10 pieces of my chocolates was gone. She said. And then she lied and said she didn't do it. She said I beat her and beat her and beat her. Until she told me the truth. And he said. Rose, I ate those chocolates. Oh, and my she didn't goodness. say anything. I could hear her from the top of the steps. I, didn't, I, I could hear her and she said, didn't say anything for a, a, a minute. She paused and then she said, well, that was a beating for something she did that I didn't catch her in. And, he, and, and they both laughed. And that hurt me so bad because I felt like I was due an apology. But she was never one to say, I'm sorry. She wasn't that kind of person. She would even go as far to say all the time. This was one of her favorite personal quotes. And she would always say, I may not always be right, but I'm never wrong. And I would think to myself, what kind of (laughs) sense does that make? (laughs) That was an oxymoron. I was like, what kind of sense does that make? And that was her motto. And that's what she went back to every time she would find out that something she said wasn't right. Or something she did wasn't right. That's how she justified it. Um, I want to add, though, in her defense, that she's still alive today. She's in her 90s. She lives in a nursing home. Uh, as as bad as those times were, in this time of my life, I cannot uh, afford to have a root of bitterness right. in my heart. And so uh, I have forgiven her a long time ago to get on with my life. You can't hold those grudges against people who have harmed you. You have got to let it go give that to God because you know what he uh is 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 the best uh justifier and he tells you in his word he says vengeance is mine i will repay it's not for us to That's do right. it's not our part to do so um I wanted to say in her defense, uh, now that she's so much older, and by the way, even though she's in her 90s, she has all of her faculties, no hint of Alzheimer's or anything. It's her body that's failed her, not her mind. Her mind is as sharp as a tack. And uh, we talk. I call her, ask her how she's doing, and we talk. We talk about the kids, and uh, she just tells me it's no fun getting old, and she she she's given her life to the Lord now, and uh, uh, the one thing that blessed me that came from her lips that I never thought I would hear is uh, last year when we were talking, she said, um, "I don't think your dad was was quite happy about the way I was raising you." She said, "I um, I just want you to know that." I did the best I could and, and um, I just hope you don't hold it against me. Well, that is as close to an apology <laughs> as she could or would ever give. And I, I just felt so at peace and so elated when she said that because it, it, it just blessed me to hear her come so close to saying, I'm sorry. She's actually said, I hope you don't hold it against me. I just did the best that I could. Well, for when I wrote the book, I didn't know some things. I found out some things later. And one of the things that I found out is that um, when she was a young girl, she was made to leave school. Even though uh, her teachers wanted her to stay, and her teachers had talked to my grandmother about letting her stay, but her uh, she was she was needed to go to work uh, because at that point my grandmother uh, was alone to raise uh, her children, and I think at that time she had four children. And my grandmother never learned to read or write, so she was very limited on what to okay. do to bring income to the household. So as the girls uh, got old enough to attend middle school, uh, when they before they could go to high school, they had to come out and go to work so that they can contribute to the household. And um, so she was made to uh, leave school and go to work. And what happened was, I, I found out that uh, many years later that it still wasn't enough to hold the family together and that those children uh were sent to a foster home and what i what i understand that back in those days the foster homes were very brutal uh and that back in those days many of them uh they really uh you know beat a lot of the yes. kids that uh they took care of and that you were really there for the for the income that you, that it brought mm-hmm. Uh, And not only were you there for the income, you were there to clean and and, uh, whatever else they needed to have done. You were the maid and everything. And if they had other children, their other children, of course, were favored over you. Uh, You didn't get the same things to eat. None of that. And once I found out that, then I understood better why she did some of the things that she did. I knew she didn't get that from my grandmother because my grandmother was a godly Christian woman. And I know it's because of my grandmother's prayers that I can name the name of Jesus today because my grandmother was a praying Christian woman. And I know that she didn't. She wasn't raised like that uh, by my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to make a long story short, my grandmother remarried and um, her husband said, go get your children. And so they did, you know, whatever they had to do to get the girls back. And then they had children together until he died. Now, he died like a month before I was born. So I never knew him. But my father was named after him. And uh, from what I understood is that he, uh, though good to his family and was a provider for his family, I understood that he was an alcoholic. And now uh, I understand what generational curses are all about because uh, him and my grandmother had uh, one, two, three, four boys. And uh, there were four boys and, and six girls in all in the family. And every one of those boys died of sclerosis of the liver. Wow. They were all alcoholics. And they all died. Generational curses that, for whatever reason, they weren't able to break. And so, uh, that childhood was terrible. But what, what I will say is, God heard my prayers. Uh, they did not go unanswered. Uh, there, there was always a period of time of suffering. But then there was also, in God's timing a way of escape and everything that I faced in those early years. And my way of escape was what happened was I became so rebellious because of what had happened to me. I had lost my parents. My mother passed away when I was 11. The way I was told was, was so cold and just unloving. And, um, it was just, uh, A really bad time. But my deliverance was that because of my rebellion, I was kicked out of school. And then I was sent to a school that was just for bad girls. It's a school where bad girls were sent. (laughs) So they put me in that school because when I was kicked out of school, I was expelled from the school and that means you don't get to go back. And in those days, you, you had, there were zoning laws. You had to go to school in the zone that you lived in. And if you were expelled from that school and they told you not to come back, then you, your all, only alternative was to go to this one school in the city, which was for bad girls. The bad girls. And
1: that's how you learn how to be a worse girl, right?
2: Oh, yeah. Because you want to fit in. Mm-hmm. You want to be liked by somebody. And so far, I wasn't liked by anybody. So I get to this bad girl school. And I realize that they had their own little cliques. You don't just get to be a part of that group. You have to prove yourself. And so they um, said, okay, you want to be in our group? You got any wine at your house? So I started thinking, do we have any wine? (laughs) So I remembered that my uncle... Uh, on occasion, he, he would keep a he would keep a, a bottle of um, red wine in the refrigerator, and every once in a while, he would have a glass of wine after dinner. They weren't big drinkers, so it wasn't like there was more than that one bottle in the house. So you know, if that one bottle was missing, if I took it, it was going to be missed. Because they weren't big, it's like they didn't have bottles and bottles all over the place. You know, it was that one bottle in the refrigerator. So I was like, "Yeah, we got some wine." So they would like bring the wine to school, and you'll be, you know, you can get in and be our friend. Okay, so I knew I was going to get caught because it was the only bottle, right? And I'm like, okay, I want to be a part of these girls. I want to be a part of something. So I understand about how people get involved in gangs and stuff because they want to be a part of something, even if it's not something good. So I I take the bottle of wine to school and it's in my briefcase and um, I take it out and I put it in the corner inside of the coat closet way in the back so it couldn't be seen. And periodically throughout the day, the girls would go in and take a few sips and Uh, All drinking out of the same bottle, mind you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, at the end of the day, I don't know why, but for the first time, for some reason, the teacher decides that she's going to go to the cloak closet (laughs) and open the door all the way as far as it would go. It was one of these um, doors that, uh, what do you call it? A pocket door. Okay. And so it goes all the way back. And so for the first time, she decides... She's going to open the pocket door all the way. So what she sees in there is the bottle. And she says, who's this? Who's this belong to? They all pointed to me. It's hers. It's Phyllis's. (laughs) Needless to say, I got expelled. I got it suspended. Go home. Got a beating. Had to be out of school for a few days. Came back to school. I had... told them when I first started going to the school that I was 13 because they were all teenagers. And I was 12 at the time. And I knew that if I told them I was 12, they, they weren't ever going to let me be in their little group because you had to be a teenager. So uh, I told them I was 13. So somehow while I was gone, they managed to see my records on the teacher's desk. And so they all knew I was 12 by the time I got back. And when I walked into the classroom, they were all like, my girl, 12 years old. And they would laugh and laugh. And I felt so bad because I wanted to be a part of that group. And so um, next couple of days, they would be whispering among themselves. I didn't know what about, but I finally found out towards the end of like the third day that they were whispering about how they were going to beat me up after school and that they had selected uh, one of their gang members to be the recipient of my beating. Mm. So um, I found out that they were planning on jumping me and beating me after school. So I tried to they all left out of the class and I tried to sta- stand around because I knew that in that school fighting was a strict rule. If you got caught fighting, you were going to be uh, expelled. And I didn't want to fight. So I was like, oh, my goodness, I can't go out there and fight. They're going to expel me again. And then where, where will I go? There was no place else for me to go. So I told the teacher Because I was the last one left in the classroom. She wanted to know why I was uh, standing around and why I wasn't leaving. So I told her about it. And she says, well, you know, you're not supposed to fight. So if you end up in a fight, she said, you're going to get expelled. So I suggested you just get on the trolley and go home. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm trying to tell them what I'm facing.
1: Exactly.
2: So uh, I left the school. And sure enough. I could see them all running towards me, coming across the street. I was at the trolley stop, and I put my books down on the on the little um, bench because I said, I'm not going to let them beat me, and I've got my books in my hand. I'm just, I can't let them beat me. And I was really angry because I knew I was going to get suspended for something I didn't do. Uh, I knew I was going to get suspended for something I didn't start, didn't cause, but by the same token – I, I wasn't going to let them beat me without fighting back. So they pushed this one girl up to fighting me. And I was so angry. I beat her and I beat her and I beat her. I beat her. Be- I beat her terrible because I was so angry. And it was like all the pent up anger that was inside mm. came out because it it, it it seemed like no matter how I tried. I always found myself in these situations that seemed to be beyond my control to fix or to make right. So I beat her up pretty good. And the police (laughs) came and they all ran and I'm the only one because I can't go nowhere. I got to wait for the trolley. And uh, I'm the only one there huffing and puffing. And they're asking me, Oh, what happened here? I told them, and they was like, "Well, what school you go to?" I was like, "I cross the street over there," and they was like, "He's like, okay, we're gonna take you back over to the school," and uh, he took me back over to the school, and um, needless to say, I got expelled, and they called my aunt, and I went home, and I got another beating. <laughs> but the one good thing about that is when I went back to the school again which was for a very short time um they liked me suddenly who knew <laughs>
0: <laughs> <All> <laughs>
2: and I did, ended up respecting you, you. <laughs> and uh even the girl that I beat she was you know very sweet to me and cordial to me and wanted to be my best friend now all of a sudden um you know the devil would want that but God had other plans for me uh, so, uh, he put it in my aunt's head that uh, I was more than she could handle anymore and that she needed to go through the court system to have me uh, sent to a boarding school where I could could be um, straightened out and uh, disciplined and to, to conform. <clears throat> and that's what happened. Now... I don't know what they thought about it. I don't know if they looked at it as a punishment or not. But for me, it was the best day of my life. No kidding. What a because relief. I felt that I wasn't going to get beat anymore. Yes. God meets us where we are. I couldn't. I was too young to be on my own. I couldn't go to my father. He didn't want me. My mother had already passed away. My grandmother, all she would say is, why did you tell her that you took the candy if you didn't take it? Mm. It's like, Grandma, I didn't want to keep getting beat. She wouldn't stop. Well, you still should have told the truth. That 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 was her right her mentality. Yes. Tell the truth yes. anyway, even if you if you die, telling the truth, tell the truth anyway. I was like, okay, uh. you know, I couldn't talk to her. So that was my deliverance at that time. I had another deliverance later when I met the first. Who I thought was the love of my life, uh, still very young. Um, he took me away from everybody that I knew to another city. He was uh, uh, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And I didn't find out about the, 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 the bad side of him until after he got me to another state. And I had a baby. And then he turned into a monster. And then he began to physically abuse me. And he began to abuse the baby. I'll never forget the day he threw the baby up in the air, almost touching the ceiling. She was asleep. Can you imagine being sound asleep, an infant less than a month old, and being taken and thrown up to the ceiling? And then somebody catches you and then throws you up again? And then somebody catches you on your way down. And here I am screaming and trying to get him to stop, stop. And he throws me to the floor and, and uh, then throws the baby back in the bassinet and says, and she's screaming now to the top of her lungs. And he's saying to her, he's saying, shut her up or I'll kill her. I'll throw her in the floor and kill her. And I knew then I got to get away from him. No kidding. And then Man. here I again. I'm crying out to God again. God, you got to get me out of here. You got to get me out of this. Help me. And he did. And he did. I think back on those days and I think about every time I cried out to God. It may not have happened immediately, but in due season, he got me out. My deliverance came every single time. Every single
1: time. And then, sorry, go ahead.
2: In, in that case, uh, the guy went to jail. <laughs> uh-huh. He was arrested. And when he was arrested, uh, they found out that he had some uh, bench warrants for other charges in another state. That's and why so, he
1: had left with you.
2: Yeah. Yes. That, so he was arrested and sent back to some place to do his time. I went to see him once in jail, and when I went, I went to say, "This is the last time you'll ever lay eyes on me. This is the last time you'll ever see me. We're done. I don't want no more letters from you." Because he was writing me letters every day. Mm. I love you, I'm so sorry. Right. Blah blah blah. You know, you know how they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love you. I'm so sorry. Please, please, please forgive me. Please give me another chance. Please don't leave me. Please don't take the baby from me. Blah, blah, blah. And I went to see him once just to say, you'll never see me again. You'll never see your daughter again. That was in 1960, almost 50 years ago. And from that day to this, I kept my word. I never looked back. I never tried to find him. Don't know where he is. Everybody that reads my book says, Whatever happened to him? And you know what I tell them? I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> now, which book was this? Because you have written that was you Kelsey. Kelsey. From Pain to Triumph. Okay. And Everything that. We're talking about now is from that book, Kelsey from Pain to Triumph. So that is your memoir. That is my memoir. Okay. Now what is the second edition?
1: Did you change it? Is that what uh
2: that the second edition, the changes in the second edition was that I actually had written a little booklet to go with Kelsey. And the booklet was called Wisdom Keys. 30 Days okay. of Wisdom Keys. Now that little booklet was based on Kelsey and what it did, it taught you it told you about uh relationships okay. how to how to uh, judge relationships what things to look for in relationships to determine if a late relationship will be healthy and good for you or not and the whole booklet of 30 days of wisdom keys uh is a book that was based on kelsey and it tells about the things that happen in each chapter that were dysfunctional uh that were based on bad decisions i made that was based on bad decisions other people made about my life and that little book of wisdom keys i combined it with kelsey and put each day's wisdom key in the chapter where it belonged where it discussed the dysfunction okay and then now you have the resolution
1: so is Basically. it more of a self-help in that respect? That respect, it
2: is. Because it tells you. It's really, it's saying, in some parts, it's, it's, for example, it's saying, young people, when you meet a young man, young ladies, when you meet a young man, uh, pay attention. Guard your heart and pay attention to what he does. Pay attention to the way he treats you. Does he get out the car, come up to your door, ring the bell, ask to meet your parents, bring your mother a flower or something, uh, take you to the car, open the door, let you in? Or does he sit outside and send you a text message, I'm out here, while his (laughs) balloon box is uh, having the whole neighborhood to shake it so loud? (laughs) When he takes you to dinner, does he talk about himself the whole time? Or does he ask you, what are your hopes? What are your dreams? What do you expect to be in five years? What are your goals?
1: Now, have you used any of, um, of these in any kind of therapy or counseling for, for young women? Or is it your books? Or how have you it's used what you've my, learned?
2: It's solely my books. I put it in my books because I know it could get a wider dissemination if it's in my books.
1: And who is your audience? Because now you, your books are
2: bestsellers. My books are bestsellers. And I thought that my audience was strictly young girls, teenagers, young adults. But what I found that when I go out to do book signings, that's not, those are not necessarily the people who are buying my books. Men are buying my books. At one point, I had more men buying my books than women, Men are buying my books. Older ladies are buying my books. Um I had a guy say, My sister is going through I try to talk to her, but she won't listen to me. Maybe your book will help her. Because really? in every you okay. do book signings, people come up to you right. and the first thing they want to know, what's your book about? Right, of course. And I give them a, a general overall synopsis of the dysfunctional relationships and how I incorporated resolutions to the problems that I face and how I sought God for deliverance in areas that I had no control over. And they would always say, I'm going to buy your book for my sister. I'm going to buy your book for my mother. She's going through something. He's going through something. Whoever the, you know what it is? Exactly. It's for whoever's going through something and they don't, they're stuck. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to, how to get through it
1: well one of the speaking of that, one of the things that you said when you were talking about your books is this: Our goal is to get through life's challenges, troubles, and trials as if it were a medicine that brings us to a healthy state of being, a state of being that promotes strength, wisdom, resourcefulness, creativity, determination, and hope but it takes those trials and tests to make our lives meaningful, colorful and complete, driving us to be creative, resourceful, determined, hopeful and open. And yes. basically in listening to your story, which you which this interview has actually turned into a story is what I've been thinking as I've been listening to you mm-hmm. to you share. And you People will take parts of that story and be able to relate with that. They'll also take parts of that story, of course, and want to read more of it
0: for that very
1: reason. But what you said here really sums up the strength that you have now, the woman you have become, how you have, through your pain and suffering, been able to help people that you'll never even meet Yeah, Because of the written word that you have have put down, which is so true in so many of the guests on this show and also of, you know, memoir authors who have gone through the mummy dearest scenarios and survived and came out stronger people who returned to society, something that they never had themselves. And uh, hope. And the determination, like you said, and all kinds of good stuff.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: So that is very well put. And another thing that you said was that all of your books, and, and give us a, a rundown of your books as well, uh, the titles, etc. But the things that you said is that they all have a common thread. There is triumph mm-hmm. after pain. There is a key to unlock every door. That's huge. There is a small voice whispering behind every choice we make, and these are the the threads that are running through your yes. books. Now, tell us about, um, you know, just quickly, if you would, your books, their names, and maybe a little bit of what they're about. Okay. Besides, besides the and who is Kelsey? Now,
2: I chose that name uh, instead of just saying "From Pain to Triumph." Uh, What i found out is that when you are a writer, an author, that when you're writing it 's called a time of of uh, birthing your birth it 's like birthing a baby mm-hmm. i 've heard many writers say it 's like birthing a baby when you 're writing a b-. my mother 's maiden name is Kelsey, and I often thought to myself because I have three girls I often thought to myself. Why didn't I ever think to name one of my girls Kelsey? I do love (laughs) the name. And it would have made a very cute uh, name. And it would have also been a a lovely tribute to my mother. I don't know why I never thought of that. And that's probably because God had other plans for that name. (laughs) And so when I started writing the book, uh, From Pain to Triumph, I said, I am the main character in this book. My name in this book is going to be Kelsey. And so I named this book Kelsey Mm -hmm. from Pain to Triumph because this is my baby. This book of memoirs is my baby. And it gives me one other last opportunity to name one of my children Kelsey. This is my (laughs) baby. (laughs) So I got to name a child of mine Kelsey anyway. And it's a tribute to my mom. Uh, So that's why I did that. Uh, I love that book because God was so instrumental in leading me and instructing me, uh, on this book because he, uh, started out by telling me, um, I want to say like 17 years before I ever wrote a word, he told me I was going to write, but he didn't tell me what I was going to write. So for years, I didn't know, and I keep asking, and I would keep trying to write something, and it wasn't nothing. It wasn't good, and I kept asking and asking, and finally, 17 years later, one day I woke up. I was at a conference, spent the night, and uh, it was a three-day conference. and spent the night, and the next morning, I woke up, and suddenly, I get this massive download that tells me uh, that the book is going to be called From Pain to Triumph. And I added the Kelsey on. I mean, I got instructions down to how the book would be formatted. So what I love about this book is that each section of chapters gives you uh, the story from my perspective at the age I was at the time the incidences occurred. Okay. Now, at the beginning of each section, the Lord had me write what my perspective is currently based on that section of chapters. Oh, very interesting. So not only do you have my perspective as a child going through those things, but you also have my perspective as adult looking back on them after I have become a woman of strength and wisdom. And that I love. And that's what everybody else loves. Every time I do a book signing or I do a book club that selects my book, they always say, you know, I love that you wrote in each section of chapters your current perspective. They said, I never saw that before in a book. And every time they'd say that, I'd get goosebumps because I know that was the Lord. He gave me that to do. Hmm. I wouldn't have thought to do that on my own he gave me that to do. So that book has the the triumph, it has the pain, it has the deliverance. It has uh resolutions of how to spot and how to deal with dysfunctional okay. relationships. Okay. And um it also has my then perspective and my now perspective. It's got a lot in that book. Okay. My other book Spirit to Spirit um is a book that I truly love as well. Um, It talks about how God speaks to us and how we kind of blow it off a lot of times because he doesn't yell at us. He speaks (laughs) in a still, small voice. And so with all the sounds that you hear throughout the day, Horns blowing, trees blowing, the, the trees whistling in the, in the wind and birds singing and car, car horns honking, doorbells ringing, people talking. There's noise, noise, noise all over the place. And so whenever I'm in a quiet place by myself and the Lord speaks to me, he tells me, he shares many things with me that I otherwise wouldn't get because there's so much noise going on. And I put a simple illustration on the back cop cover as my description. And it talks about, have you ever heard a still small voice saying, take your umbrella today? You decide not to listen because guess what? There wasn't any rain in the forecast. When you listen to the weather, you look outside, the sun is shining bright. And so you say, ah, it's not going to rain. And you leave the house without your umbrella. And then you go somewhere, the sky gets dark, and unexpectedly, it pours down rainy, and you get soaking wet. And the first thing you think to yourself is, something told me to take my umbrella. Well, you get those unctions in your spirit many times. You'll say, something told me to go and do this, or something told me not to do that. And every time you get that something, which is... The voice of the spirit telling you, every time you get that unction and you don't listen, believe me, it comes back to haunt you. (laughs) So this book, Spirit to Spirit, I actually write, uh, uh, how how many, how many? I write 18 chapters. Each chapter is a different short story okay. of different times in my life where the Spirit spoke to me to do something or not to do something and what happened as a result of my listening or not listening. And it was always terrible when I didn't listen. And it was always a blessing and something that came out really good when I did listen. So that's why I love this book. It it lets people know that you're not in this fight alone, that there is a God and that he cares about what we're going through. He cares about what happens to us. He cares about what we do. And he cares about getting us to a place of favor, of grace. And of blessings. And we can't get to, to those places if we're not listening. Sometimes she says, come over here. I want to bless you. <laughs> you're in a place where the door is closed. Come over here. And when you don't listen, you're you you uh, you're out of position. And so you are not in the place of blessing. And a lot of times you miss it because you weren't listening. So that's why I love that little book, Spirit to Spirit. Asia's Everyday Life Picture Poetry book. Oh, That book is about my granddaughter, Asia, and I wrote that book. It started out, uh, we were just fooling around one day, and um, I was telling her she had a glass, and she's a great spiller, always spilling something on the floor. And I was like, stop. You're going to spill that juice if you don't stop, and I said, and if you don't stop it, I'll have to mop it right here and right here, and she would fall out laughing, and she would say, say it again, Nana, say it again, (laughs) So I thought to myself, hmm, why don't I just make up a book of other little poems? Because it ended up being a little poem. I didn't know, you know, I was just fooling around and I ended up making it a poem. And I said, I think I will try that. And so I started writing some little poems about Asia and it's about the simple things in life that Asia enjoys doing.
1: Oh, that sounds really cute. And, and is, I, it, is it a children's book then? It's or a children's book. It's okay. a children's
2: book. I had a fantastic illustrator. I would be remiss if I left her out. Her name is Amanda Paul Bennett, and she did a fantastic job on the illustrations in this book based on the poems that I gave her and uh, the photographs that we took to depict those poems. And it was just a wonderful project. Now, the, the main point of this book is that I'm raising my granddaughter. Now, we're in a season right now. We're in a season right now where um, uh, grandparents are becoming caregivers to yes. their children more and more. Yes. And so I say, author Phyllis Clemens is no exception to this assigned position. She shares with you some of her heartfelt memories with her granddaughter, Asia, that have been an inspiration to her. She hopes you too will be inspired by the common bond that she shares with grandparents who have an opportunity to bless the lives of their own grandchildren.
1: That's beautiful.
2: And I say that because It didn't start out that I wanted to raise another child. I had raised my children. I had retired from my government job. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to travel. I'm going to shop. I'm going to just do whatever I want to see the world and, you know, stay in my pajamas all day. And if I want to or whatever. Well, no, that's (laughs) not what God had in mind. He had an assignment for me. How old did she? she's eight years old. And how long have you had her? Uh, since she was born. <laughs> oh, my goodness. My word. Since she was born. And she is growing up to be a lovely young girl. And see, this is not, uh, even, even though I started out not wanting to do it, I recognize why uh, I'm doing it. I'm doing it because it's an opportunity for us to be to plant a seed into the lives of the young people that God has placed in our lives that we are stewards over we have an opportunity to uh be a living epistle if you will uh, to live a life of of a functional family in front of them uh to teach them good character what good character is through just watching what, what we do and what we say. To teach right. the, the basic foundation of ethics, morals, good character. These are all things that we can seed into their lives. It's an opportunity and one not to be missed if you are, find yourself in that position.
1: Well, Phyllis, we are definitely running way over time here. As much as I have enjoyed your story And I know my listeners have enjoyed. I know that there have been some tears and some rejoicing because you tell a wonderful story, both in uh, word pictures describing the pain that you went through, but also the triumph. And I hope that we can, um, uh, you know, really help in this regard as far as people connecting with you buying your books uh, contacting you um, we'll have all that information in the show notes you have really touched my heart I know you've touched many hearts today that there is triumph after pain yes there is a key that unlocks every door no matter how hopeless our situation seems that God hears us, and he will find and give us a way of escape. Oh, yes. And then that small voice that you said that is always there directing us as long as we learn how to listen to it. So there is so much here, not only what you said, but what you didn't say, and also what you will say as far as when people can connect with you. Um, and I so appreciate you sharing this interview today as a story because it it's a story of triumph it's not a story of of pain and suffering and hurt it's a story of who you became as a result and
2: you got through and you're going (laughs) yes and I'm just happy to every time I have an opportunity to share um, I think that uh, when, when we're alive, we have to leave something in the earth that stays, that remains after we're gone. Something that's going to continue to bless the lives of the people who read our books, who see our messages. Something that will encourage and inspire and give hope for generations to come after we're long gone. That's, and that, that's my hope.
1: And that's it in a nutshell. Inspire, encourage, and give hope. Yes. And so at that note, we will say goodbye for today. Um, I'm hoping that we will do this again. There's, I know, a lot more in Phyllis that she wants to share. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yes. I'm a big talker. I forgot to tell you, Carol. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's up to the listeners to listen. And I think they will be spellbound and they will want to hear what happens. And I know that we didn't tell the whole story because time didn't no, permit. Time so There is permit. there is more. Oh, to come I left hit. out so many good parts, y'all. <laughs> okay. Well, we will get those next time. Okay, so I Carol. thank you, Phyllis, so much and thank you and god bless and you too and goodbye bye-bye
0: thank you for listening to never ever give up hope featuring carol graham did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to quitting was never an option carol loves your comments and will respond to each one